Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And sort of boil them down into a little pamphlet that I could run these games that I wanted to for people in a quick, easy way that still has all of the... Uh, nasty, grimdark flavor uh, that I love. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Draw Your Dice. I have a great guest with us today, another fellow trustee from the Brain Trust Podcast Discord. If you haven't listened to them or joined the Discord, please do, because you're going to get lots of insight from really great designers all over the place. We are going to talk about some games today developed by this person who has taken inspirations from the No SR package they specialize in really cool short style games that have that i feel have a lot of longevity to them let's welcome to the stage john geary (sighs) hello jeremy hi john it's a pleasure to have you here it's i feel very happy to be here and i'm excited to get to know you today you too. For the folks at home who may not know you or have had the pleasure of hearing you beat people in Super Smash Brothers, <laughs> would you give an introduction of yourself as you present yourself to the world for the listeners? Yeah, my name is John Geary. I use a he, him, they, them pronouns. You can find me on the internet at gay half orc. I am. 27 years old. I live in Massachusetts and I 
like to play role-playing games and write them too, I guess. <laughs> Amazing. All the way from Massachusetts, fellow East Coaster here. Love it. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that I live near the Cleveland area in this show, but I live in the Cleveland area. Maybe tell Tyler Crumrine's episode. So thanks for being a fellow, fellow East Coast Midwestern or Midwest East <laughs> Norther. Yeah. We do not have a good name for our area of the region. <laughs> Before we dive into talking about these games that I had a lot of fun reading, kind of playing yeah you play I, them. I try to if like read, solo read, play them <laughs> yeah, yeah you if, can. if you read them you played them yeah <laughs> yeah i love that why don't you tell the folks at home because i like to remind or i like to show people the journey that people take to becoming a game designer and it's not always the same for everyone what was sort of your first role-playing game experience or touch and what was sort of the first thing that started pushing you to wanting to write or design games yeah, I mean, I think I've been playing, I think most people, if they whether they realize it or not, have been playing role-playing games, like, their whole life. Like, I played a lot of, I did a lot of pretending when I was younger, and I, I played a bunch of different, gaming has been a huge part of my life, and, like, the way that I get to know people and, like, make friends and stuff, I started playing war games at a pretty young age. I was like 10 or 11 years old. I have like a very vivid memory of my cousin coming back to Massachusetts for Christmas, probably in like 2004, and them putting together a Dark Angels Space Marine model kit on my grandmother's kitchen table. And that is sort of like the first spark of uh, hobby games that was introduced to my life and when I was growing up I was fortunate enough to have a games workshop store at the mall that I grew up near and I spent basically my entire beginning teen years inside of that games workshop and kind of it became how I made friends, the entertainment that I did, where I hung out. And then I think once I sort of like met people there, I got into like the Warhammer role-playing game and like Planescape, AD&D kind of stuff, which I, a lot of it I don't really remember that well because I was very young at the time for for that, I mean, comparatively to now. So like, I don't really remember playing it so much as like having funs with my friend uh, having fun with my friends role-playing and stuff and so yeah games have always been a big part of my life and then as I got older and got back into like more role-playing stuff I kind of found like indie games and apocalypse world and then when I got into design I would say it's because I started listening to the Backstory Podcast by Alex Roberts and getting to hear about game design from designers and from Alex sort of was like, hey, I could probably do that. Like I, you know, I remember making up scenarios and stuff for war games with my friends when I was young and like, you know, making little mini games, hacks of, of war game systems to make our own like 
sort of like Halo or other video game inspired kind of like skirmish stuff. And I think that when Alex was, Alex Roberts was working on Starcrossed, that was sort of like, oh, games can be about anything and, and more <laughs> than just like, you know, shooting people with space lasers or, you know, knights fighting and stuff like that. So, yeah, then I tried to write about, I think, like, my life through the lens of the games that I was playing, like, this sort of, like, uh, a lot of, like, dark fantasy themes mixed with, like, stuff that I you know, like my feelings and stuff, trying to like get it out. But games were sort of such a big part of my life that that's how I knew how to be creative with myself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now, and I think that that's kind of a lot of that has to do with the games that we plan to talk about today, mostly Mindwalk, which is like a lyrical RPG and like supplement zine that I worked on, uh, started writing in September of 2020, the very bad year. So I think, uh, yeah. I, do you have any questions about that? Or <laughs> I know that that was kind of a long spiel, but. No, I, I've said many times on the show, I love long. The, the <laughs> show is about you. It's never about me. So that was amazing. Lots of things. First of all, I, I think it's really interesting that you point out that a lot of people don't, even myself, as you say it, don't realize that they're role, that they're role playing their entire lives, basically it's from childhood, essentially. I remember very vividly that we, when Pokemon first became like a big thing, especially like the trading card game hit in like, I want to say 97, 98, 99, something like that. Yeah, that sounds I just, about right. We were, we would be in the basement, just me and, and three of my brothers and two of us would be the trainers yelling out commands and the other two of us would be some sort of four-legged version of ourselves that would be a Pokemon and just wrestling, really. It's like mm -hmm. someone just calling <laughs> wrestling moves at each other, flamethrower. And then my mouth would open and then we'd have to pretend that flame hit. So I love that, that you kind of pointed that out that the, remember all of you adult gamers out there, the child still lives within you. <laughs> Don't ever forget that. Um, it's interesting that, that war games and, and Warhammer are sort of your first touches. A lot of the, I think only one other guest so far has had like a non D and D first touch experience. Maybe not two. I think Adam Vass and Max V have both had non D and D touches, which is great. I love hearing those sorts of things that when uh, D and D experiences are not are not the very first thing that that people touch base with. I'll have to check out this backstory podcast as well. Yeah, but I love fantastic. I love your journey. Yeah, I, I I love your journey, and I think backstory will be on my podcast shout out episode that might be coming in like two weeks or something. Yeah, it's not, this episode. it's not running anymore. Mm -hmm. It's on the, it was on the one shot network, but I mm -hmm. think you, I'm surprised that you haven't heard it. Cause I think that the show is 
it has like a very similar format to it. And I think that you would, it has a lot to offer. It's just a lot of great interviews. <clears throat> and Alex is a fantastic game designer. So definitely check it out. I have uh, underlined it three times, so I have no <laughs> choice but to. Well then, since you sort of spieled it, let's let's talk about first Mindwalk and Mindwalk one, two, and three. For for the folks at home, I know you gave us a small supplemental piece of it, but give us a full spiel of the of the Mindwalk series. Okay, so yeah, September of last year, I was really struggling with game design, I think. And a lot of my frustration came from not wanting to make like a, a diceful system or really a system at all. I wanted to sort of like put out these ideas that I had for a game or, or like game material in a way that was not like I, I in, in sort of a catharsis, catharsis way where I could just like get it out onto a page. And it was sort of the idea that I had was like deconstructing the way that I sort of like imagine as I'm playing a role playing game, like the I think like the the first paragraph of the the first issue talks about being in like a gray cylinder that's like a hallway and mm -hmm. I wanted to communicate I wanted to sort of abstract the <clears throat> the dungeon of like a classic fantasy game and sort of put onto the page the way that I imagine my character moving through the world and it doesn't when I am role-playing I'm not imagining like this highly detailed space it's sort of this gray plane that has you know suggestions of walls and and so it's not a fully formed idea but it's still or not idea but fully formed picture but it still feels like a character living in a space but mm -hmm. And I wanted to create sort of a dialogue between me and the person reading what I was writing. I wanted it to feel like I was a game master in a game and the person reading or playing this game was my player. And I think that, or I was also thinking about at the time, questions that a game master could ask a player that weren't what do you do? Because I think that we're so trained uh, as game masters to, for that to be the question, like every time, you know, like you're in this situation, these are the people here, this is what it looks like, this is what's going on, what do you do? And I think that it's a good question, right? Like it, it's how most people play, but I think that for me, the fun in role-playing a lot of the time is asking a question to somebody either as a player or as a GM that points them into the direction I want the narrative to go, but I'm not, or maybe that I think is interesting, but I'm not just saying this is what happens next. 
sort of like a little curious poke is, is kind of what I wanted to do. Get people, I wanted to lead them on a narrative, but I wanted them to have say as well. And I think that that, yeah, I, I, I wanted to do that in a, in a very quick and easy way for people. It, I think that the game is structured to have the person who's reading it interact with it in, in many ways. And that's sort of what the goal was. I One, I think you knocked it out of the park as far as your intent. When I was reading through the Mindwalk series, one, each, first off, each one felt very unique in its premise. The first one feels sort of like that dungeon, but I also got this like post-apocalyptic vibe from it. I don't know if that was intentional. That was yeah, like my baggage that I brought to the table. No, it, it, not at all. That's something that like most sort of, I guess settings that I like to play in are I love like like gothic horror or post apocalypse grim dark. That's that's sort of like you said with my sort of introduction into fantasy gaming not being swords and sorcery dungeons and dragons but like a blasted landscape of terrible things is kind of that's where that's where i go when i think fantasy and i i, I played a lot of gamma world last year so post like that and it was a huge a huge it's been a huge influence on my work and entirely i think it, it it's it really opened up opened me up to a lot of cool stuff that I am now trying to incorporate into how I play and write games. So yeah, post-apocalypse for sure. Yeah, it it all feels very, I'm sure we'll touch a little bit specifically on each one over the course of this, but they all feel very, I don't know. One, when you talked about sort of pretty much being a GM at scale. So like presenting yourself as GM through the narrative and themes and questions that you're providing in this, these pieces of work. I love, I think you, again, just to sing more praises, you, you did it. Like I was, I was reading it and it felt like I was having a conversation with another person through the pages which was which was really cool they also feel very dreamlike like i feel like i'm immediately taken through this sort of out of body experience we we talk about lyric <laughs> yeah, games a couple of time on this it, it, it's yeah that's that's why it's called mind walk because you're i i want the the player and i mean it's a lyric game so the bleed is definitely intentional of of are, am I playing a character here? Is this me? I definitely want it to feel like when you imagine what's going on, there's this movement that, up forward that's kind of uncontrollable. Like you're mm -hmm. just observing this this movement through a world. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> I guess I did my job. You did a great job. And for also for no one that or for anyone that, that doesn't own the game, the games are only four pages that you can print out on a single piece of paper. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this, they have a lot. I feel like it's the it's the most distilled version 
of a solo game that I have experienced that I could play and feel like I could play for like four hours or like multiple sessions if I wanted to and break it up. I could, I could re-ask myself questions that I had previously answered, even as I was reading through them, even though I wasn't rolling dice to net, I, I rolled dice a couple of times to get an understanding of the game. But before that, I was kind of subconsciously putting answers from the tables to the questions that were presented in the document. And I, I don't know, I just, when that happens for me, cause it's such a new experience for me as a, as a game designer slash reading games that it just feels very cool. And it, it feels like I've, I've already played the game. Like I didn't roll anything. I didn't talk to anyone, but I've already played. We, we <laughs> talked about this with when we had Adira on here and talked about her, game chair and sort of how you're already playing when you read and that you know the bleed and slash when are you playing sort of defining the lyric game but those are amazing amazing things the the one thing i wanted to kind of poke at a little bit that you were talking about is sort of evolving the what do you do question and for me you know my first touch bases are dnd 5e and shows like critical role sort of my entry into how to GM or how to play a game, right? Like that's sort of my, was my first lesson book. And I've, I've slowly started to wean off the, what do you do or how do you want to do this or those sorts of questions because they're very generalized to the situation. I've been finding myself being more attracted to asking more intimate questions like, what are you feeling right now? Or sort of like, what do they want from you? Like asking more player directed questions that, mm-hmm has them shape the narrative for me so that I can respond appropriately to that instead of me being the proactive unit in this formula. I'd rather have the player be the proactive unit in this. That's very much, I agree. That's that's how I GM. I think I, I show up to the table and I hope that the players have cool ideas for characters that I can ask cool questions to see what those characters wanna do, yeah. I think you, you're, we're on the same page, definitely. Great. I love when we're on the same page. So what was sort of the, I know sort of the first touch base. So what, what was your inspiration hook that caused you to make each mind walk? Like, did they come from sort of a, cause the other interesting thing that I don't know if this was intentional, but all three mind walks, if you have all of them, almost feel you're you're taking on like a continued scenario through each one. Like at the end of the post-apocalyptic mind walk one, I feel like that I've fallen in this sort of nebulous void or liquid or like that was where my, I think it's because I was reading them back to back. So that might be Mm -hmm. my projection of them, but like I fell in and then mind walk two starts. And then so you're sort of navigating mind walk two and then mind walk two ends and you wash up on shore and you're in mind walk three. And I'm like, I just, I just found that very cool. That was the feeling that I, I put on those things. And I want, I wanted to know if that was sort of intentional and what were the inspirations behind each of the individual pieces? Yeah, that was, I didn't, I don't think I set off to do that at first, but when I started writing the second one, that was definitely what I wanted to do was create a linked experience throughout however many there, I don't know if I'm going to make a fourth one, but 
I probably will someday. Um, but yeah, I wanted to create a linked experience, but have them all stand alone as their own kind of thing. But I wanted to create sort of a narrative that felt like you were going through these different layers or like climbing upwards kind of like, that's why the second one opens with, I don't know the exact words, but it's like you ascend a staircase and then you're submerged in liquid. So like, even though you're going, you're like diving or you're, you're reaching a, a body of water, you're, you're going up still. So the inspirations for the settings for each game, the first one is a dungeon. The second one is a sewer system. And the third one is a city. So you're moving from this, who, whoever's dungeon it is, to the sewer access where the dungeon, you know, goes up into, into the sewers because those were probably built first. And then once you get through the, the sewers, you're in the city that sits on top of these two other levels. So I think the, the first one is definitely inspired by games like D&D. And then the second one lives in this middle layer that is inspired by games like D&D. But also my favorite Games Workshop game of all time is Mordheim, which is, it came out in 1999. It is sort of this idea of Y2K panic, but in, well, or post Y2K society, if that happened, but in a fantasy, a grimdark fantasy setting. So it's this sort of this cataclysmic event has happened on a city and now treasure hunters and event adventurers are going to it. And it was at that game had a really big impact on me because it was a setting that was familiar to me, but in this whole sort of new way and it's a skirmish game as opposed to like a rank and file war game. So you're in, instead of like hundreds of characters, or or people you're controlling five or six and it's a lot more narrative driven and you it's has a lot like linked scenarios and there's campaign play and your characters change over time and that was sort of that was uh, a really that had a big impact on me because instead of just like dice and games now i can put narrative to it and that so mindwalk 3 is definitely like my love letter to Mordheim, my favorite game from from growing up. I I love that. That's amazing. I always love when someone says a the two combination words of love letter uh, to anything. I think there's just something really romantic about that that plucks at me in a special way, and I think all those inspirations are amazing. I, when you talk about them, how it's like, I didn't, the, the second one, Mindwalk 2, that you said was sort of like a sewer thing. When I was running through it, I, I think I put myself in the liquid the whole time. Like, I don't know if I ever hit dry land ever again. And it yeah, had almost you're, this you're, very... You're in a full sewer pipe. And cool, the, the, cool. The, the contagion has entered your body for sure. Yeah. And it was almost this sort of eldritch horror experience that one i love there's this if, if you love grim dark slash horror fantasy things dark fantasy things there's this podcast called 
the white vault which has really been rustling my jimmies for like adventures i'd want to write for the uh sword and sorcery style games or or ultra horror games but it's rustling jimmies is now canon vocab on draw your dice so write that in the lexicon whoever is doing that for me at this time and I really, I really love the feel of it. I guess for my personal biases, I, I really love the feel of Mindwalk 2, especially. For Mindwalk 3, you talked about earlier that you were sort of frustrated with dice, dice sort of full systems, like, like you know, we're, we're talking, I don't know if you were talking specifically like stuff like Blades in the Dark-esque style games, and you were trying to sort of wean away from those. But the third one has a little bit more mechanical brevity to it that sort of like the map landmark walking sort of piece Mm -hmm. of the game why sort of push on this new mechanic did you just want to try something different or what was what was the intent there yeah i watched i was so there's a sort of a take on a hex crawl in the third issue that uses what's like this piece of math called a penrose tile and i just sometimes I watch nerdy YouTube videos about math and geometry because they come up on my feed and I watch them. And this, I watched a video about Penrose tiles and it was uh, really cool. And I was like, oh, this is, this is game stuff right here. This is, this is for games. And for people at home, a Penrose tile is like an organization of, two-dimensional polygons that create a infinitely expanding, never repeating pattern. So the one that I used in uh, Mindwalk 3 is a, they, the, the polygons that they use, one of them kind of looks like a dart and one of them is like shaped like a kite. So like a irregular quadrilateral. Um, and so the the mechanical stuff is comes from this tile set that I found a, a picture of this Penrose tile, and it uses the Penrose tiling as the randomizer as opposed to having like a hex crawl where you move to a new hex and roll on a table or or something like that. It's a, a three color Penrose uh, tile, so that the shape, the actual geometry of the shape gives you a piece of information and the color that the shape is gives you a piece of information and because this tile tiling system is infinite and never repeating the 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 different pieces the three different or five different pieces of information get mixed up over and over again it's almost sort of making an abstraction of a as you explain it, my first sort of inklings are to see it as a combination of a hex crawl and like a random table generator, almost sort of, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can make informed decisions about where you're moving, but I think it's really interesting to combine those ideas together. I don't know if it was intentional, like intentionally thought of like a random table sort of thing, but that's, that's sort of my pull from it. I think that it's, it definitely was. And I think that, like you said, you can make informed decisions. 
that is that is sort of like what was exciting about it to me is that it still has that piece of like hex crawl tech if they're if the, you know this hex grid is over like a, a forest map or or something like that like you kind of sometimes if there's no you know if there's no like fog of war or whatever you can kind of know where you're going but i think that that was exciting like if i could give these different quantifiers things that the, the player of the game could sort of judge ahead of time as they're looking at this map they could i'm again giving a little bit of control to the narrative and then they are bringing their own kind of thing if you know oh i want to go to this space next because it's a place of blood and magic and i know that and that sounds cool to me so i want to go i want to go there next even though there's no it, there's no like oh you move this many spaces per day or or yeah, it's, yeah. It, it just presents this map and suggests that maybe you might want to go here you start maybe here but i wanted it to the game is intentionally designed to like you could almost take the you know tear the paper on the fold once you turn it into the little zine and like oh okay i'm just gonna have the i'm just gonna take this random table with me to my next gamma world session or, or whatever or i'm gonna you know rip this the map off and use that for oh let's play like a blades one shot in this weird city or something like that and i think that's that the mm -hmm. oh sorry go ahead no, no no go ahead go ahead okay um the when i wanted to make a penrose tile map i think that the city that i was kind of i knew i wanted to do something because i love city games like more time i love blades blades is one of my favorite games you know even running like D, &D games i think are much more exciting for me to run in a city setting than a wilderness one because i love the kind of infinite possibility that a city role-playing game has to it. Like, there's no, like, oh, well, we need this one thing. Where are we going to find that out here? Well, we're in a city. You can basically just say, yeah, it's here. And I think that the Penrose tiles sort of weird geometry lends itself to, like, you know, fantasy city set settings of, like, crooked streets and, like, not <laughs> 21st century city planning and, and stuff like that, so... Yeah, I also have this slowly growing attraction to more touches on adventures or settings that have a large city component. Right now I'm trying to make games that happen in a more modern setting, like modern fantasy, alternate history thing. I don't know what to call it. I haven't found the trope name for it yet, but or tvtropes.org name, but... Yeah, what's also interesting about sort of this addition of this map system that you kind of caked into your, this mind walk piece, there's also, as different from the other ones, at least in my readings, that there is a semi-present goal for you, like to get to the, I think it is the heart of, heart of the city, and, or at least a specific building, and do is that again one of those things where like you just want to try something different with the mind walk series was that intentional because of the idea that the map brought to the table why sort of add a a goal it's sort of a goal i want people to understand that that this game doesn't tell you you have to go to the building it just presents it to <laughs> you but i find it interesting that 
you've added this almost monolith to this game. Yeah, I think... I think because I thought of this, this third one as an ending of sorts, not maybe like the ending, but I think like the the sort of the idea I had of like the dungeon sewer city narrative of this person as, like climbing up from underground that, yeah, I think it was intentional to have this place. And it's also the map doesn't have anything else on it, right? Like, mm -hmm. you, it tells you where you start, but, I mean, it's an infinite, if, it's an infinite plane that if you just extended this, this PNG past where I cropped it, it would, you know, <laughs> there's other stuff around there. Yeah, I think I wanted to, it was, it was just like a, a reference point of making it look more like a map if I had two objects on it than just, you know, a piece of art or something like that. I think it, it makes it, it grounds it as a map if I have a start and an end, kind of. I I love that approach, and I was just thinking to myself that Mindwalk 4 is just the full circle that you enter the building, and it's just another dungeon. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Mindwalk 4 is play Mindwalk 1 again. <laughs> but, no, that's that's really interesting that that you thought about how to ground the mental image for the player at hand by analyzing what sort of baggage your piece of design brings along with it too. I think, at least for me, when I think about designing things, I'm a very systems thinker. And what that sort of means is that I think cyclically about how everything sort of ties together. Like if I bring dice into the game that means i need numbers of some sort or results of some sort or there's just pieces of adding things to the game that you have to consider when you're sort of designing them which partially this podcast is all about it's about the design of games and how to approach those things and i i, I just i just like it i love that that john i think you're very smart and it uh, shows yeah thank you that's that's that i think was a lot coming I, think, to say. I think a lot of people are smart I think more people need to say that to people. Oh, <laughs> me too. Tell people you love them and that they're smart. Great. I think that's all the, the nitpick pieces I, I, I wanted out of Mindwalk. Is there anything else you sort of wanted to touch on that we've sort of been talking about? I don't know. Yeah, that's it. I think it's a simple game. I think it's a small game, which is something I'm very passionate about. It mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. really small just your game doesn't need to be a 700 page book it doesn't need to be a 60 page book it i think that especially like i've, I've you know only been like i would say doing game design as a practice for like two and a half years and i think that more i think that more people need to be encouraged to make small things especially when they're starting out because even though this is you know two eight and a half by 11 pages it really taught all of them have really taught me a lot about different things about game design and i think that 
small stuff is cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've already got the title of the show. Big things come in small packages, so <laughs> it's already it's already in there. It's in the title. This next segment, before we get into talking about the the next bit with Sledgehammer, design trends. So in this, I kind of probe the designer to see if they're noticing any design trends that are really popping up uh, on their radars or blipping on their radars in their communities or in their sphere of influences. Maybe something you like about... uh, that's that's starting to manifest in game design culture or something that's manifesting that you don't necessarily like. I mean, this isn't a dunking show, except I, I dunk on D&D a little bit every now and again, but, you know, I don't I don't want to point, at, point any fingers at anyone, but there are sometimes things that appear that, like, when we had the, what was it, like, two years ago? I think it may have been two or three years ago. There was, like, the talk about how safety rules, and there was a big discourse about how safety rules don't need to be in games because it bogs down the game. It's like, that's not a trend we need. We need the safety tools. Please bring them in the more games. (laughs) Right? Like, that. those are the kind of things I touch. Safety is not a trend. (laughs) Safety is a necessity. And Or if there are any personal trends that you would love to speak into the universe that you would like to see more of from game designers of any discipline, whether that be video, role-playing, lyric, whatever have you? I think a trend. I mean, I'm really interested in a lot of the mixing of OSR and more story game stuff, because I think that those are like the two worlds that I really, really like. And I think that people a lot of people are really really successfully mixing those two things <clears throat> right now like with like no sr by natrum and highland paranormal society which we'll probably talk more a little bit about um stuff like troika and and stuff like that because i think that a lot of the time when people have tried to do that in the past they've kind of missed a little bit, but I think that a lot of people have been influenced by these two things that are the, a lot of people who are currently designing right now. And I think that they're simplifying the correct things on both ends of the, the spectrum and bringing them together in a cool way. And, and I think that that's something that I aim to do with my work. So I hope that I can continue that trend. <laughs> Yeah, I'm all for mixing the peanut butter and the chocolate and everything. I'm yeah. all for mixing. I love remixes. I love covers. But I my only touches with OSR for if I look back on my game shelf and make sure that yeah. So my my main touches are really just Torchbearer as far as OSR and then there's also the what is it called? 5 Torches Deep. 5 Torches Deep. Yeah, which is like a blend of 5E and OSR thoughts and trying to blend those things together but i love the concept of taking two things that seem to be in completely different spheres of existence and then saying like well they don't have to be we can start 
pulling those spheres of existence together yeah. and causing an implosion. That's how money is made with implosions. And I, so to my knowledge, I mean, I don't know if anyone else is listening that hasn't really touched base with OSR. And I don't think I've, I've probed another guest about this, but what is sort of the, in your opinion, because, you know, I think it's unfair for you to be the exact expert on what maybe OSR is, but what do you think some of the, the touch points of what defines uh, an OSR game is, or are, excuse me? Yeah, I think, I mean, my... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I don't know if I want to be the person to define what OSR is, because I think mm-hmm. <laughs> many people don't like when people do that. But mm-hmm. my, I think th- what I will say excites me most about OSR is like free, f- what, the, what sort of older games, and I guess games currently still call like freeform role playing, where it's about... Like, it's not about looking at your character sheet and saying, I want to cast Fireball. It's about doing what your character, like saying what your character does in response Mm -hmm. to a situation and then trying to find the piece of the game text that will allow uh, you, the table to like mechanically sort out how that happens. And sort of this, I mean, I don't know if, Torchbearer necessarily does this because that's a pretty crunchy game, but like <laughs> flat fl- flattening a lot of systems into their like distilling these 
systems that have like trad games that have sort of ballooned into these monsters of giant books and, mm-hmm. and flattening them into a more easily digestible rule set that gets out of the way and sort of allows it, it, it focus really puts an emphasis on play, like the word play, you know? I hello doggy, love you. Sorry, it's fine. Do we want no, to... no, no, no. Sorry, that okay. wasn't a point out the sorry. I literally just want to say hi to the dog. Not a joke. Dogs are welcome on the show. I I find that really interesting because when I talked about that five torches deep, kind of supplement bridging piece, it really is a squashed down, distilled as a uh, flattened version, as you say, of. D&D 5e, which I find very, very fascinating. Uh, I think that's what attracted me to it as a as a piece of work in the first place, because I have my, as you say, a lot of these games that have been around for, or not only games, but also the concepts of what trad games sort of stand upon have ballooned in these very large products, and a lot of that stuff gets in the way of play a lot of time. We know we talk about, we. I think people joke about the rules lawyer stuff and et cetera, et cetera. And all that is sort of a result of saying that there are so many moving pieces to this mm-hmm. style of play that we can't cognitively decide how to project the, our imagination onto the narrative, right? It's like well, I don't have the right number to do that, or I can't roll this because in this, like, I can't grapple and attack at the same time in my turn unless I have this thing. And it's like, well, you know, if we're talking about a narrative fight, you absolutely can punch someone and grab someone (laughs) at the same time. Like, that's totally a thing. But because the rules get in the way, it becomes this battle against the book, really, in some cases. At least that's the way I'd I'd like to phrase it at, at current. Yeah. I, I agree. I, yeah, I think it's, I mean, even when I play uh, a game like Mothership, which is an OSR game, I think, I don't use all of those rules. And that's like a 60-page book. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes I don't, I, it's not important to me, I think. And I think to a lot of people are coming to this conclusion that it's not important <clears throat> that we get every single rule right you know I, I just yeah okay that that sounds fair enough Let, let's handle it this way is mm-hmm. and i think that that is great for games because that is i'm more interested in what's what is happening on screen than i am this you know subsystem or or mm-hmm. which is cool like you know crunchy games i like too but mm-hmm. i think it's exciting to see people move in different directions exploring unexplored paths let's talk about sledgehammer so i printed out sledgehammer john i have it right here this is the coolest thing since sliced bread i've ever held in my hand i love that i could print it out on one paper fold it 
and I have a complete game that I could put in my back pocket or in my wallet and always have it with me. It's just so cool. So what was sort of the inspiration behind wanting to, I know we've talked about that you really like, one, would you give a brief introduction to Sledgehammer, and two, what was sort of your inspiration of why Sledgehammer? Why create Sledgehammer? Yeah, Sledgehammer is uh, rules like Grimdark Fantasy OSR game. It is the game that I want. It is, I wrote it for me, so I could run it when I play games <laughs> with my friends. I saw on Inch, no SR, I think it stands for Nate's something simple rules. I don't remember what the O stands for. It's by Nate Trem of Highland Paranormal Society. And basically he wrote this very, very simple OSR game that basically he had played, sort of done this improv, playstorming-ish kind of session of a fantasy game with people. And then he wrote all the rules down that he used in that. And it was, it's like a eight page zine. It's like a one page folded game. And those are already something that I love to make just like silly fanzines or different things like that. Cause I think, again, I love like small creative projects that I can bang out and then hold a cool little zine that I made in my hand. So when I saw his game, I had already sort of been want, wanting a a very similar thing of like, damn, I really wish I could run some like first edition Warhammer Fantasy stuff, but I don't want to spend three hours making characters and, you know, teaching my friends this game from the 80s that is laborious and, I mean, I love it, don't get me wrong. I think it's juicy and fun and has all the good crunchy bits that you want in a in a game. But it's just it's too much a lot of the time if it, not everybody is down to spend 2 hours making a you know rat catcher peasant that is going to die in 30 minutes or whatever. So <laughs> so I tried to take the sort of philosophies of Nate's game and put them through my lens of my references that I have and game mechanics that I like, like D100 style games, and sort of boil them down into a little pamphlet that I could run these games that I wanted to for people in a quick, easy way that still has all of the nasty, grimdark flavor that I love. I love that one to touch on sort of the small projects piece that you could bang out. I, on a lot of these episodes, just this one's for the, for the listeners. It, you know, we talked about how your first game doesn't have to be 300 pages. Your first game can literally be a page if you want it to be, and still be a very successful game. I mean, I have sledgehammer right here in front of me and I holding it. You're like, how do you play? Hmm. Maybe on someone's first approach, how do you play a game with this that comes from like D&D, right? But then I open this up and I see so much density. And I don't mean I don't mean crunchy in the sense that this is is a mechanically 
deep game or or mechanically heavy game, but there's so much here. There's so much here that you could just run with it and go and have a blast with. And what's nice is that like each player would have their own little packet with their character sheet on it. And I just think that's cool. It's a, it's a concept that I've thought about for a really long time when it comes to the character sheet. I've always wanted to create this character sheet that feels like opening a journal that's sort of like a video game menu or something like that, hmm. where you could like go to a page, oh, there are my abilities, and then like just have that piece of information, that cognitive load for that page alone or, or something to that effect. But I, I love it. And you have... You know, there's also all this flavor and theming in here too. I mean, the the art direction for it. Now, is this all hand drawn? Yeah, I just did it in Procreate on my iPad. Yeah, <sighs> amazing. Yeah, I wanted it to feel like my notebooks from like fifth grade, where <laughs> I would get in trouble for writing Warhammer army lists from memory during class and stuff like that yeah (laughs) the other thing i wanted to touch on that you sort of mentioned in there was how you wanted one to make a game that you want to play which i think is important for a lot of first game designers especially myself like i finally found a game that i'm like i want to play this This is the game i want to play that kind of like branches off from sword and sorcery i love this i'll talk about that on some twitter thread or whatever but I think it's important to talk about that elephant in the room that's sort of the, I want all my friends to play D&D 5th edition with me, but they also have to learn all of the rules. Like, let's talk about the mechanical crunchiness behind playing a druid alone and how much you have to remember spells, shapeshift forms, and that's if you're not a circle of the moon druid. Like once you get into there, you're like, what's CR2 and CR3? And there's like a lot of moving parts for that. Spellcasting modifiers. What does an ability score mean? There's a lot of moving pieces to the puzzle. And creating something like Sledgehammer that has, I mean, I'm not familiar with Warhammer, but I would like to believe that you nailed Warhammer in these small eight pages. So to create something that goes from the giant making up a number, 600 page monster into this tiny packet that has the same exact themes, motifs and weight behind it. You could bring any adventure to the table, any setting you want to like, it's just very powerful and it's so quick to, have a grasp with, you could just hand this little packet to a new player and say, here's the rules. Let's play. Like you could be mm-hmm. done in 10 minutes, which is amazing. Yeah. That's, I, that's what I set out to do. I think is make something that, cause I've taught Warhammer fantasy role play to a lot of people and no offense to the people I've played the game with. It is not a very fun game to teach, but I wanted to make, there are parts of the game that I love. Like, I love D100. I, I love D100 games because you can put so much... In my, you can put so much more information into a D100 roll than you can almost any other die because you get two digits every single roll, so you can use both of the, either of those digits for 
one thing. You can use the other one for another thing. You can take the two digits together and use them as one thing. You can flip the, the sledgehammer doesn't do this, but you can flip the two digits to get another thing. And I also really like, and especially for new players, you know, having be like, okay, you have plus three on this D20 roll versus 13. They don't understand, no, uh, nobody should know how to do the odds to that. You know, like they don't know what that means. They don't know, okay, so how likely am I to succeed? I don't know, you know, like pretty good. It's pretty good. You got plus three, right? That That sounds good. But if you have, Okay, you need to roll under 25 on a D100. That means you have a 25% chance to do the thing. You know, like it, it, I think it, it, I, I like it a lot. And I also really like the advantage system from the most current iteration of Warhammer Fantasy because I, as somebody who played, I thankfully don't anymore, but played too much 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Not a fan of the advantage system there. I know a lot of people like it, and a lot of people use it for their games because it's very simple. You just take the, you know, roll the dice twice, take the higher or whatever. Mm. I have baggage from playing that game or games with that that I don't like. So the D100 system... And the new advantage system from the most current iteration of Warhammer kind of boiled that down into its smallest thing I could find and put it in Sledgehammer because it, it, it still made it so that everything could be done resolved with a single die roll, which I think speeds play up. You don't forget, have to, you know, oh, I forgot that this one thing gives me advantage or whatever. Now we have to re-roll dice or whatever. You can just be like, no, just add plus 10 to your, the score you need to roll under or whatever. Yeah. Those are, yeah, touching on for the first thing I want that I immediately like toolkitted, like I put in my own back pocket, is in one of the rules for Sledgehammer, you have the D, roll 1D100 to hit, and then I'll touch on the, advantage stuff in a second but you said on the singles digit one that's the damage you do and for, to me there's just something so like chef's kiss about that because i constantly think in like when i've run D games some of the things some of the like tips i give players like speed things up is roll your to hit and your damage at the same time but then there's like four dice there especially when you touch on the pain point of like the advantage disadvantage system in D and D how, and all of like the number canoodling is causes those scenarios where it really like grinds the game to a stop. Like, Ooh shit. I forgot my plus two. That's actually 13. Oh, I have advantage. I rolled one dice. I should roll a second. Right. Or I don't have advantage. I rolled two dice by accident. Let me roll a third dice. Like just those sorts of things can really muddy what's, what's going on for sure. But that, that attack, like use one of the dice you've rolled to execute the thing is is very chef's kiss to me the <laughs> like like i laughed at it's no one should be able to math out d20 plus five against cr13 what's my chances or ac13 or whatever what are my chances right like with a with this d100 roll under system it's blatant 
it says, okay, I have a quarter of a chance to fucking nail this thing or I don't, which to me is not the greatest of odds. I, I don't know if I would take that role, but I think it's really awesome that it's that it feels so smooth and quick and present. Like I don't need to out I don't know I don't need to solve for X when <laughs> when I am playing a game like this. So that's really cool. We see in the the information load you could add to a D one hundred, not only in that you could potentially have a hundred options if you want to, but again the percent game is so nice because you could change a table or options in a way that presents them more often, right? We see this in things like Iron Sworn as well, where you can build out in like their Iron Sworn Delve supplement, you can build out a dungeon and say like, this is the percent chance you have to run into this rare monster. This is the percent chance you have to run into this guy that you're chasing. And like, those things are also very cool, useful, feel smooth and are quick and you can you can shift those to create a different feeling at all times right you mm-hmm. can change that rare monster because the it like you've hurt one of the babies of that monster so now increase that size to like half the table right you could just x out a bunch of other options say now 50 percent chance that this mama is going to find you and bite your head off because of what's going on so it's flexible i guess what i'm saying is that the tables uh, a d100 system is very very flexible when it comes to that sort of stuff yeah i agree i love it i love d100 games <laughs> it's definitely something that that i've kitted into the the pieces so this also sledgehammer as you can hear me opening it this is the asmr experience i hope everyone heard that there's a little bit of setting in here as well from all of the cobbler options to the careers options but also the corruption system that you have on here that sort of adds a secondary health layer slash resource layer to the game has the word daemon on it. Nowhere else do you sort of, at least not that I see on here, you mentioned the word daemon, demon, daemon? Is it daemon? That's whatever, yeah. I'm just trying to, it's I'm just like, using old Warhammer spelling, you know, when British people like to add extra vowels and stuff to their words. That's what invigorate, it's a the difference of invigorates. Yeah. But yeah, there's this like little setting component to it, but I guess for an osr gamer that dark i guess not osr but for a dark fantasy grim dark style game what was sort of this because i had adam vass on here and we talked about the the what does life mean or vitality mean to Mm -hmm. characters so why add this sort of topping corruption component on top of the wound system for this just just the personal question i have Uh, yeah so the the like main uh like this game is just a it, it's warhammer with the zero numbers filed off but so there are there's the concept of these gods of chaos or like evil gods which is the main sort of force of evil in the universe of warhammer and it's something that i've always like religion and fantasy because of i guess my introduction to sort of that universe being my introduction religion and fantasy has has always been a huge motivator for me. Like nine times out of 10, I'm playing a cleric when I roll up to play D and D. It's just, it's, it's cool. Right? Like ditto, ditto. And in a grim dark setting, 
I think having sort of a corruption mechanic or this fear of a greater power that is injecting itself into you or trying to change you really keeps the characters in to in the universe of like it's just bad stuff happening to people like i i love the idea of a fantasy setting where you're not playing like you know champion warriors like i'm playing a man with a knife and that's my character right like i'm playing that's that's what i i that's uh fun that for me that's fun like i'm playing a guy who cuts wood for his day job and the reason he has a weapon is because it's his wood cutting axe and he you know it makes me you know when i think a lot of people get like sort of epic scale fantasy because it's this power fantasy for them like they feel like the strong uh hero that's overcoming evil but to me and i know a lot of people don't feel like this but i feel even more powerful when it's i'm like a barber and i have saved my own life with my bare hands against this horrible force of evil or something like that makes me feel more powerful than like i'm this stoic knight who slayed a dragon it's like well yeah he's a stoic knight he's gonna slay the dragon obviously but if it's if it's a man with a knife and he overcomes the great evil (laughs) that is really powerful and I think that like the the corruption system is probably the the thing that's most mechanically new about this comparative to no SR, the game that this is the a lot of the mechanics like the wound system and stuff is based off of. And I really like this sort of like stuff like Devil's Bargains from Blades or where your character and the player is sort of testing their luck. And I wanted to incorporate that into the game. And I also wanted to incorporate this sort of dark, horrible stuff into the game as well. So I think that putting them together as this sort of, you know, I, I, the, 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 the design is tempting you to give yourself a plus 10 to the number you need to roll under, but you have to tick apart of corruption and the design is tempting you. The only way to heal in the game is to gain corruption. So you sort of have this resource that you're spending that gives you a lot, but if you spend all of it, you basically have to prepare for the worst. The The rule is when you fill your star of chaos, which is this clock that's in the shape of a eight pointed star, you succumb to the dark gods doesn't tell you what happens it's it's a signaling to the gm to do your worst which is like something i've always really enjoyed is when games you know i think i first came like across across it from apocalypse world where it, it doesn't tell you the the most severe severe consequence it just says prepare for the worst because that is i think it's so juicy and good and like that's the the question that I love when a game says, what is the worst in this? You know what I mean? Like it could mm-hmm, be mm-hmm. A, such a variety of things. And in 
the second mini zine that will be in the release with this, which is sort of like a a more GM or, or ref, as the game calls it, focused zine. It sort of gives you a little bit more things you can do with the corruption mechanic and like I, it's a game I'm writing so there has to be a mutation table in it so when you that that's sort of a suggestion is if the player fills their corruption track the GM can offer you know the, the GM can take on the role as one of these horrible chaos gods and say hey your character can live longer if you allow me to mark you with a horrible tentacle or something like that, that people in the setting are probably not going to love. You know, their cook now has a tentacle or something. But I mean, if you want to live past your fifth wound or your seventh point of corruption, then you have to, to pay that price. And then, you know, that will eventually probably lead the characters to starting their own cult of a chaos god, which is <laughs> what I want to happen at the end of every... Uh, the dream. Th yeah, that's what I want to happen at the end of every Sledgehammer scenario. So, The classic dream. I love that. Yeah, it's. I love this sort of like... I know in a lot of cases, health often is the ticking... Sort of the ticking clock of, of games, but that's whether or not they have some way to restore that health or not. But... I, I agree. I like when games sort of don't let death be the final outcome to those sorts of scenarios where like a character is reaching the end of something where there's life filling with corruption, the end of a journey or something like that, where it's not like always a noble sacrifice. And, you know, like you said, it could be anything. It couldn't, it doesn't just have to be the character being afflicted. It could be an NPC you've created, a place in the setting. It could be another player character because it doesn't always have to happen to you in some cases. The worst thing for your character is to lose their family, right? Mm -hmm. Like that could certainly be an option. And I also love this concept of sort of a legacy event for games. I know you talked about mutations, but I've always been poking around with this idea of like, I think about a standard or a classic example of like there's a necromancer, a player dies, they bring the player back as like a death knight or something mm -hmm. like that, whatever that happens to be. And I love these concepts that I don't see too often, at least in the games that I've touched base with, but I love these concepts of games where, no, 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 your player character is still around. They're just a problem for you now yeah. in some effect, right? And I love, because it adds this sort of like, extended storytelling and the person who made that character if they be comfortable with the with that presented option gets to see either a potential like redemption they get to they get to decide how to handle that problem right like i think it still puts onus in the player's hands to deal with their player character they still exist they're controlled by me as the gm but you have a continued say in how they how the fiction affects them right and i think that's really cool this concept of of legacy of mechanics in games yeah i agree with all of those points <laughs> awesome sledgehammer is a, a beautiful game john beautiful game you i, I don't I'm know why you're not charging it. fifty dollars for this because i wouldn't do that <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm tracking. But, you know, what was the exact number? Isn't it like 648 or something like that? I don't know. It changes. Yeah. It's Google says it's 688, but yeah. I, I saw something on Twitter that said 644 or something the other day. I don't know. Either way, you get almost the exact same game in eight pages. I don't see why you they get to, pick to make it up $200. Two, and yeah. you, you, know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, I don't have a... No, no. You don't have to pick mine up with two hands. Let's just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. This is a design tip TLDR section where I'm going to roll on this table I have beside me. Ugh. That's how big the dice was. <laughs> Would you, to whatever your experience is, do not feel... I can, I can cut out any dead air that I please. But take your time. With any experience that you have, would you talk about uh, a tip for collaboration that you might have for listeners? It doesn't have to be related to many of the things we talked about in this episode. It can be completely left field of those things. Yeah, I can. Collaboration. I think that, I mean, I've never, like, I've definitely, like, done brainstorming sessions with people, like, one-on-one and stuff. But I think, like, even just, like, community engagement is probably my biggest form of collaboration that I do. Like you said at the mention at the top of the show, the Brain Trust Discord has really helped me become a better game designer and like uh, a better layout person, that kind of stuff. And I'm also uh, a member of the Boston Boston Area Game Designers Meetup. We meet like once a month and chat about games and stuff and I think that even I think that like if you're trying to design a game for the first time or not for the first time getting involved in a group of designers that are willing to talk about games talk about your game offer ideas is like incredibly invaluable like it it helped me so much being a part of like those two communities, especially just being able to present something to somebody and that moment where they read it. And then they're like, Oh yeah. What if X, Y, and Z. And then like I say all the time to myself from just experience going to the Borgade meetups, what would Simon Moody say about my the problem I'm having in my game design process right now or like you know what would what would Adira write here or something like that because I think getting to know other people's processes and just talking about your own work with somebody will bring you up to another like the next level of your design every single time and trying to 
get other people's ideas is going to change so much about the way that you work and what you get excited about in your own work and obviously other people's too. So like my biggest tip is shoot your shot, show up to the Diesel Cafe in Cambridge without knowing anybody else who's going to be there. And, you know, you'll see, you'll meet Will Yopes and they'll help you with your game or something like, or click that Discord invite link and say hello to them in their introductions channel and then post a work in progress of your game. And I guarantee you, well, I'll guarantee you if you show up to the brain trust that will help or, you know, you'll it, it, other communities. I, I am sure you will find a similar experience that everybody is excited to talk about your game, basically regardless of what it is, because if you show up to places where people are interested, they will help you. So I guess that's collaboration. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. That it's listen, it is just a prompt for expression of tip. That is, it's a D100 table, but do we want no. to roll mind walk mutations while we have D100s out? I can grab mine. Yeah, yeah sure. What? Yeah. I've, we're doing it live folks. This is new. <laughs> uh, while we set the, I want to back John's tip. I mean, I, it's, you know, for me, I find it hard to expose myself to everything. It, it's hard to find the deep dive that will take you to the right place and get the information that you need for whatever it is you're working on. I don't just mean games. I mean like any discipline that you could be learning at this time, cooking, drawing, engineer work, like just soaking up ideas. It can be hard to do the R and D of that by yourself. So when you have a space where you can poke out to 10 people at, at minimum, at, at even maximum, I guess, they can help bridge the gap in your lack of knowledge or your lack of focal resource. I mean, I, I've only been starting to game design in the last six months, really. Really since almost starting, a little bit before starting this show. And I know for myself, I have grown leaps and bounds faster and farther than I would have by myself. That's with huge, huge kudos to the Brain Trust group, for sure. I, I wouldn't be the person I am today as far as the discipline is concerned without them, for sure. And that includes yourself, John. I mean, you've helped me on, on a number of, of things as well over the course of general chats. Um, well, I got to so say, it's you. pretty smart of you to make a game design interview podcast <laughs> because that's, that's, that's pretty good if you're a game designer yourself. So do what Jeremy did and start a game design interview podcast so you can learn from people and help people, too. I'm I will not deny that there are selfish ulterior motives to this show. Yeah, it's not selfish. Not... It's smart. It's, <laughs> Thanks. It's very good. So I'm going to roll mine. This is okay. uh, from the mutations table in the first issue of Mindwalk with a gorgeous picture of Ilya Rapan's Ivan the Terrible and his son in the <laughs> bottom corner. My favorite painting. I got a 33. Mm -hmm. I got very small bat wings. Which is probably the, the cutest of these horrible things that could have happened to me. What did you get? <laughs> Let's see. I roll. That is going to be... Is that 100? That is 100. You got lost body. <laughs> You're a ghost now. 
<laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't feel good, Mr. Stark. Spoilers. Spoilers. Uh, sorry. Spoilers for issue two. Yeah, warning. Little warning. baby Peter Parker turns into sand in the second issue. <laughs> so this lost body wants to welcome you. <laughs> how do I... I hope I can figure out how to like add a dust gravel noise <laughs> to my mouth at this stage. I'll figure it out, maybe. But wants to welcome you for being on the show, John. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you, look at your work? I mean, a lot of these links will be in the description, but it's always nice to vocalize them. Yeah, you can check out my stuff at gayhalfwork.itch.io, the coolest website on the internet. And then you can go to the worst website on the internet, twitter.com, and look <laughs> at my profile at gayhalfwork. Perfect. That's it. Well, John, it has been a pleasure, an absolute experience with you. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to be on your show, Jeremy. It's a great show. I wanted to be on it because you're really good at interviewing people. And yeah. I think Thank you're, you. it's a fantastic show. More people should Thank be you. on it. If you're listening right now, you should. Ask Jeremy to be on their show. That's very kind of you. Thank you for saying that. Yes, anyone, anyone new or veteran is welcome on this show. Please reach out to me on Twitter at JeremyGage5. And John, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you here. This has been whatever number episode, I'm going to guess this is going to be 16 think it's 16 i'm not keeping track i hope it's wrong of draw your dice thank you everyone thank you john have a great day say bye to the people john bye to the people john (laughs) all right that's a wrap john you were an absolute ball of kindness that i had the pleasure to get to know if you didn't know there is a sledgehammer jam happening right now over on itch.io so go and check that out All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with John, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you liked the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way over on ko-fi.com or itch.io. Also, if you are unable to donate, please consider sharing this with the person you thought of while listening to this episode and leave a review. Both of those methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me at JeremyGage5 over on Twitter with the hashtag IDidIt. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.